Well, I'm delighted to be joined for the second hour by my dear friend and colleague, Kevin Barrett, now residing in Morocco. Kevin, among the developments we've been addressing during the first hour was Colonel McGregor's observation that the U.S. has no foreign policy, that in the Middle East, we're simply instruments or pawns or tools of Israel, and that you can best understand what's going on there by assuming the equivalent that Benjamin Netanyahu is a commander-in-chief of the American military. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's that's pretty much the case, although it's, it's not clear whether Netanyahu is 100% in control, uh, maybe, you know, 65%, I would say. There are reports that uh, immediately after the successful uh, Palestinian raid on Israel, the breakout from their concentration camp on October 7th, that the Israelis were about to go all out against Hezbollah. And according to reports, the Biden administration or whoever's in charge in the U.S. Uh, gave them a very firm no. But there haven't been very many firm no's given to Netanyahu and his crazy extremist co-ministers. So, yeah, they're they're largely in charge. I actually just published uh, an article entitled uh, Flashpoints for War, looking over possible places where the next world war could start. And, and one of them was Florida, where you know, I said it's imagine it's October 2024, polls ahead. Uh, Trump's ahead in the polls, 55 to 45 percent leading in the swing states. And suddenly a drone swoops down on Mar-a-Lago, smashes through a plate glass window and stings Trump with its explosive charge. But fortunately, before what's left of Trump is declared dead, the media tells us that an Iranian Palestinian terrorist named Lee Harvey Atta uh, did it. And so he's arrested on the seventh floor of the Palm Beach School Book Depository, but is accidentally defenestrated before he can be questioned. But fortunately, on the floor of the book depository, the authorities find an Iranian-made Manilkar Karkano drone control rig, complete with instructions in Farsi, signed by the supreme leader of Iran. And so that then would uh, indeed cause Biden to fly Bibi Netanyahu straight into the White House Situation Room, where he will uh, take control, full control of U.S. policy. Um, anyway, I, hopefully there won't be one of these crazy false flag type events that would put Netanyahu in total charge like happened on 9-11. But you never know, do you? Well, your satirical gifts have not failed you, Kevin. I've always admired your stylistic manner of lampooning events in a way that gets right to the heart of the matter. You mentioned Florida's one location for World War breaking out. What were the other four? Well, the others were actually kind of more obvious ones in certain. I guess the the Trump, <laughs> you know, killing Trump and blaming Iran is pretty obvious too. But but the other ones included uh, the Red Sea, where we could get a, a kind of, instead of a, a Gulf of uh, a, a Persian Gulf of Tonkin incident, which we've all been waiting for for what twenty years now, we could get a Red Sea Gulf of Tonkin incident. An American ship could go down. It could be blamed on the Houthis, whether or not they actually did it. And, of course, it would be blamed on Iran as well. And then uh, another possibility, of course, uh, would be another of these kinds of attacks from, you know, uh, Qatar, the Qatar forces or other uh, militias in Iraq or, or Syria, you know, any any of those that uh, did a whole lot of damage, killed a lot of Americans uh, might work. Um, then, of course, with, within Palestine itself, there's always the possibility 
of some kind of big event happening. Right now, the world, you know, so much of the world is so angry at the Zionist genocide that it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, actual uh, no return address WMD uh, suddenly went off in uh, inside of Israel. And I mean, that might very likely you know, wouldn't have to be a false flag. It could be true. And other flashpoints, of, cor- of course, include Ukraine and Taiwan. In Ukraine, Zelensky's faction, the fanatics, they don't want to give up. So the only way they even have a chance is to drag NATO into it. And that would take a big false flag, like maybe a, a nuke blamed on Russia. And then over in Taiwan, the final flashpoint that I listed, clearly you know, that's the big, you know, that, that's the big kahuna would be the number one power, the U.S. versus the rising number two power, China. And the Americans have been provoking the Chinese and poking the dragon for years. And if they poked hard enough, the dragon might bite back and we'd be off to the races for a big World War III between the number one, formerly number one power and the uh, rising number two power that would probably uh, become number one in the aftermath. Do you know that uh, Oliver Stone has made a wonderful statement denouncing Netanyahu? I mean, very emphatic. Uh, I've been totally impressed by what he had to say. I'll I'll pull it up and share it with you uh, as soon as I can find it. Here here we have. And check Check, check this out, Kevin. Oliver Stone. Netanyahu is a madman. I repeat that. To me, he's a madman. I met him years ago. I interviewed him when he was out of office. I thought he was a madman then, and I think he's gotten worse and worse. He's truly insane. I've never seen such slaughter being justified like this as revenge. How do you wipe out a political movement? It's never been done in the history of the world. How are you going to kill off everybody? What do you do? Separate them? Send them to Egypt? It's just mad, the whole solution. And what was sickening to me was when Biden went over there, hat in hand, money in hand, to give him what he wanted. This is the problem with our country. In that regard, I think Trump, although he supported Israel to a max and made quite a few mistakes in that regard, has better choices to make. We can't do this. We can't constantly support Israel. We have to say, no, cut them off. Cut off everything to them right now. That's what I would do. And don't give me this anti-Semitic shit. I mean, I don't even know what they're talking about. Who are the anti-Semites in the world? Just a few nutcases. Nobody's an anti-Semite. Unless they have a problem with Hitler and all that. But this is an issue about justice and peace and balance and basic human decency Kevin, I've never been more proud of Oliver Stone. What a wonderful statement. When most of Hollywood is, of course, just singing the usual Jewish hymn. Yeah, I think Oliver Stone is basically a reasonably good guy. And, you know, I've had this argument with Laurent Guyano, who wrote the book uh, JFK 9-11 and has written articles uh, such as 9-11 was an Israeli job and uh did the CIA, or I'm sorry, did did, uh, did Israel kill the Kennedys? And the answer, of course, in his uh, mind is very likely yes. And so he, he argues that Oliver Stone's JFK film was actually kind of a distraction. It was financed and produced by Arnold Milchan, who was a self-confessed Israeli nuclear weapons smuggler, 
who helped uh, organize crime steal American nukes and send them over to Israel. So having that guy produce the film JFK and leave out any whisper of possible in Israeli involvement in murdering uh, President Kennedy was, um, you know, in Laurent's mind, it was suspicious. But in I think I don't think Oliver Stone understood that that was the case. I think he was steered into the same path that we all were back then, which was focusing on the CIA and, and you know Vietnam and Cuba and such, and not so much on Israel. I think he was perfectly sincere, and maybe you know Milchan probably wasn't. Maybe Milchan sort of hoodwinked him and helped steer him. But I think Oliver Stone's a very good guy, basically honest, uh, quite bright, and has been on the right path, saying the right things about a lot of things in Ukraine. And, and now I think he's right about Netanyahu. But unfortunately, it's not just Netanyahu. The whole Israeli society has gone mad. The polls are showing 95% plus Israeli Jewish support for this genocide. So it's a, it's a whole national psychosis, and Netanyahu just kind of symbolizes it. I played a clip where Judge Napolitano was interviewing Phil Giraldi, and he included where Biden was questioned about responding to the uh, attack that killed the three U.S. servicemen in Jordan just over the border. And saying that, he holds Iran responsible because Iran has been providing the weapons. And what the judge was pointing out is that seemed to be quite a slip on Biden's part because we're supplying the weapons for Ukraine. We're supplying the weapons for Israel to slaughter Palestinians in Gaza. And he was asking, why not an intrepid follow-up question to ask, well, doesn't that mean then that the United States is responsible for genocide in Gaza, which you and I both know to be the case, but where is the national media confronting Biden with this grim reality? Well, of course, the American uh, neocons who run the empire these days are frustrated about Iran because Iran is kind of the, the heart of this axis of resistance, but it doesn't run the other members. The way the axis of resistance works is that each group is totally independent. They, uh, they all receive financing and you know help and arms and things like that from multiple sources, not just Iran. Uh, we saw that, of course, with Hamas. Uh, Hamas's major funding was not from Iran, even though it's part of the axis of resistance too. Hamas's major funding was actually from Qatar with the blessings of the Israelis who escorted the suitcases full of cash into Gaza to hand it to Hamas. Uh, so each of these groups in, in the axis of resistance, the multiple kinds of militias, branches, really they're de facto branches of the, uh, the Iraqi military. There's Hezbollah, which is a de facto leader of the Lebanese military. And then there's the, the Houthi movement, which is a de facto government of Yemen. Uh, these, all of these forces are loosely allied with Tehran because all of them want justice for Palestine and they want the U.S. to leave the region. And, but Iran doesn't tell them what to do. Iran has a certain amount of leverage due to its support, but with Hamas's uh, October 7th uh, operation, uh, Alexa Storm, they didn't even tell the Iranians that they were going to do it. It's pretty much all sources agree that it was a, came as a surprise to Tehran and that the Iranians were even a little miffed about that, you know, because they like, wait a minute, you just started what could turn into World War III and you didn't even ask us our opinion first. Uh, so the, the thing is, it's, it's Iran doesn't control these groups. And so Iran shouldn't be blamed when an Iraqi uh, paramilitary group, uh, you know, is targeting American bases. That's not Iran's fault. 
It's the fault of the Americans who invaded this region, are illegally operate, uh, operating in Iraq, occupying Iraq and Syria, which in itself is a war crime, among all these other war crimes, including the crimes of aggression when the U.S. invaded Iraq and also Syria, for that matter. So uh, it's it's uh, a situation where the American neocons are frustrated because, you know, what are they going to do? They've got all of these forces. The, the vast majority of public opinion in the region is actually supporting the goals of the axis of resistance, which are the liberation of Palestine and chasing the Americans out. And so all these groups are working for those ends. And the Americans are frustrated. What can they do? Well, they can, you know, the, the Bibi Netanyahu wants to so they call it cutting off the head of the snake, which means going after Iran, which is the most powerful member of this axis of independent entities that all agree with the 95 percent plus of the people of the region that Palestine needs to be liberated and the U.S. needs to be out of the region. Yes, yes, yes. Well, one of the flashpoints, of course, being the Red Sea, my wife addicted to MSNBC. I was captivated by, I think it may have been John Kirby talking about the situation there, or the MSNBC anchor saying how the U.S. was retaliating against the Houthis because they were interfering with international shipping and in violation of international law without ever mentioning that the Houthis had declared war on Israel, that the Houthis were only interdicting shipping that had cargo destined for Israel, that it was the Houthis who were acting in accordance with international law in the U.S. and the U.K. that were violating it by simply suppressing the most basic predicates on which action is being based. They give a 100% distorted view of what's going on there, Kevin. I so admire the Houthis and stand with them, and yet they're having to suffer, you know, ongoing bombardment by the U.S. and the U.K., which is taking place in violation of international law, the Geneva Convention, the laws of war, and all the rest. It is shameful. Well, I think the Houthis have a pretty good argument that they are enforcing the world court's judgment that takes uh, has ordered the Israeli government to stop uh, any acts of genocide that appear to be going on there. And that order is being flouted uh, by the Israeli leadership, which has continued to massacre the same uh, 100 plus up to averaging 200 at times people per day, most of them innocent civilians, the majority women and children, while uh, the Israeli leaders continue to make genocidal statements that they're they're just going to clear, you know, get rid of everybody. Uh, and, and so the Houthis are actually the enforcement arm and really the only serious enforcement arm right now of the International Court of Justice. So it's the U.S. that's violating international law by supporting genocide. And obviously, in this case, you know, if we had an impartial international law system, uh, the American leaders would all be uh, tried, convicted, and probably executed alongside their Israeli genocidal counterparts. And then the, uh, the Houthis would be you know, wearing the badge of enforcing the law. And, of course, if the U.S. think the Houthis are going to be a pushover, they have another thing coming. They've sustained like around eight years of bombing by Saudi Arabia, which was supplied with American weapons, probably even American pilots. So this is really a continuation of what's happened before. Not only that, but the Houthis prevailed. They were able to work out a 
tentative peace agreement with Saudi Arabia, where the Houthis would take the north and the Saudis the south, which happens to be the oil-rich region, but where the Houthis have never been in it for financial reasons. I got to say, Kevin, for the the poorest nation in Africa, that the Houthis are saying a hell of a moral example. I mean, they are exemplary. I applaud them. They are heroic. Yeah, I agree. Now, they're not in Africa. They're across the Red Sea from Africa. But yeah, they're very poor. They're probably the poorest nation in the region, especially after the suffering that they've had to undergo uh, since this crazy uh, U.S. supported and instigated. Well, maybe not instigated. There's dispute about what the uh, then Obama administration's viewpoint was about the launching the war on Yemen from Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. But the the Yemeni people, they have really suffered uh, horribly. They've been undergoing the kind of suffering that now we're seeing in Palestine. Um, maybe the bombardment hasn't been quite as extreme in Yemen, but it's been pretty bad. And then the uh, cutoff of the means of life, the water supply, the food supply, the sewage systems, and so on and so forth, has also been going on for many, many years in Yemen. And I, I forget the exact uh, number of, of estimated dead, but it's actually much greater than we've had so far in Palestine. So Yemen has been uh, horribly mistreated by this global neocon empire. And I think that's one reason that they are working to support the Palestinian genocide victims right now, because they understand that kind of suffering. And so they want to stop it. Yes, yes, uh, I, I have no end of praise for the Houthis, and here you have the Israelis practicing genocide on the Palestinians by means of starvation with a siege they imposed after 7 October. No food, no water, no fuel, for most part, no communication, and it's starting to take a toll I gather a lot of Palestinians are on the verge of starvation. And, of course, I mentioned the rule of three, that a, a human being can go three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. Well, it's now been a hell of a long time. What do we have, 120 days of this siege, Kevin? It is outrageous. It is monstrous. And I can't understand how any decent human being could possibly support it and not be vehemently opposed to Israel. Yeah, I, I agree, Jim. And you know, I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial now, but it, it just occurred to me uh, that I wonder, you know, people say, well, these, you know, the state of Israel was supposedly basically legitimized and, and became a state because of the, the Holocaust, right? That everybody around the world made a huge exception uh, for, for the Jews because and no, uh, nowhere else would you ever allow this group of settler colonialists to travel thousands of miles across the seas and, you know, basically displace or murder and expel the indigenous people and call themselves a country and claim that they have the right to do that because they allegedly had ancestors there thousands of years ago, which actually they probably didn't. But that's another story. In any case, that's just so insane that nobody would ever be allowed to do that, except because of the story of the Holocaust at that time, uh, supposedly an exception was made for the Jewish people to have their Jewish state in what they claimed was thousands of years ago Jewish land. But 
I wonder, you know, the, the whole never again uh, slogan that emerged from the Holocaust that, you know, Jews of all over the world have always said never again, never again, never again. Uh, and people, you know, Jews like Samantha Power, Cass Sunstein's wife, have made a whole you know, career of saying that we need these humanitarian interventions. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I have to look at, at what's, you know, Israeli behavior. And it occurs to me to question whether the Jewish people in Israel even really believe that there really was a Holocaust. Uh, and that because if, if they did, if they really actually believed the reality, the historical reality of that kind of suffering that Jews underwent, in fact, you know, regardless of what we think about might have happened there, obviously there was a tremendous amount of suffering. Uh, but if, if indeed it was as off the charts as the standard Holocaust narrative tells us it was, with six million dead, most of them killed in gas chambers, uh, as part of a deliberate plan to try to exterminate all Jewish people, if not on earth, at least within reach of the Reich. Um, if that had been the case, uh, that, you know, that would have been, again, so horrible, as the official Holocaust narr narrative tells us it was, that you would really think that Israeli Jews would be very aware of the horror of genocide, genocidal campaigns to exterminate populations, get rid of populations, which is what was supposedly done to them. But I have to wonder, Jim, whether those Israeli Jews really believe the Holocaust narrative. Because, of course, as you and I know, we've both looked at the, I, mean, I don't know how much study you've put into it, but I've, I've read a number of books, in, uh, including books by Holocaust revisionists and books that attempt to refute the Holocaust revisionists. And the, obviously the Holocaust revisionists have a pretty good case. That is, the, the whole six million dead, mostly in gas chambers, it's part of a deliberate extermination plan, uh, officially, you know, in the German bureaucracy. Well, that, it's more likely than not that those three, you know, the holy trinity of the Orthodox Holocaust narrative is just not true, and that the reality was a lot less than that, and that we got that exaggerated version due to wartime propaganda that then somehow survived the war. And so, if indeed, at some level, you know, I, I think the smart Jewish people know this. Philip Zelico, for example, who talks about public myths, I think he knows that the Holocaust was very likely not nearly what the official myth tells us it was. And he knows that's a public myth, which he defines as a belief that people have in common that motivates their political and social behavior, but may or may not be true. And I wonder if not just the intellectuals like Zelico and the specialists, but also it kind of filters down to the Israeli people. Maybe they realize, based on the kinds of complete nonsense that they've been fed, uh, you know, we've see, seen this in the documentary, uh, defamation, which Israeli children being brainwashed just absurdly in, uh, with all this insane Holocaust propaganda. Uh, and the, you know, we, I recently learned from a Ron Unz article on this topic that in the 1960s and 70s, the most popular, there was, there was this huge wave of Holocaust pornography in Israel, and that like a huge numbers of Israelis were getting off on watching you know, Nazis rape and torture Jews, and then Jews uh, rape and kill Nazis in revenge. That was their what got them excited sexually, apparently. There's something weird about this. I, I think that at some level, the Jewish Israelis actually know that they're liars, that they founded Israel on a whole series of lies, including the story, the maximal story of the Holocaust. Uh, 
And that's why they're perfectly happy to do another genocide, because they know that the supposed genocide that was done to them didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen at, to the extent that their uh, their extreme uh, myth of the Holocaust tells us it did. So, I mean, am I, am I crazy to think this? I mean, that, could yeah. it be that it's not so much this extreme belief in the Holocaust, but it's actually that at some level they know that they're they're completely full of shit <laughs> that explains yeah. their insanity. Kevin, you're spot on. I mean, I wrote the introduction to Nick Kohler's from Breaking the Spell, which may be the most important book on the genocide myth because he had access to the British death books. They had cracked the German code. So they had all the records from all the camps confirming the results of the International Committee of the Red Cross, which was keeping meticulous records on the age, the sex, the ethnicity, the religion, and the cause of death of all the inmates, where in 1993 they recalibrated the total, 296,081 from all causes, none of whom were put to death in gas chambers using Zyklon B, which was in fact being used to kill body lice, which was spreading typhus and dysentery in the camps. In other words, to preserve the health of the inmates for the obvious reason you can't get work out of a corpse. We'll be right back with my special guest, Kevin Barrett, right after this break. take a moment to thank the listeners and hosts for all their support that has made Revolution Radio one of the biggest platforms for free speech in an ever-growing dark world of censorship. Unfortunately, this platform for free speech has never been free. We need the support of the people. It is the people like you, yes, you, that keeps the station in the front lines of the battle against tyranny and oppression. Please help support Revolution Radio so free speech will not be silenced in a world that seems to be going deaf to the real truth. With your support, we will be able to become an even bigger pillar of light in a dark world. Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the planet. Revolution Radio.
on Studio B for Momentary Zen with host Zen Garcia at freedomsteps.com, the people station. Even the government admits that 9-11 was a conspiracy. But did you know that it was an inside job? That Osama had nothing to do with it. That the Twin Towers were blown apart by a sophisticated arrangement of mini or micro nukes. That Building 7 collapsed seven hours later because of explosives planted in the building. Barry Jennings was there. He heard them go off and felt himself stepping over dead people. The U.S. Geological Survey conducted studies of dust gathered from 35 locations in Lower Manhattan and found elements that would not have been there had this not been a nuclear event. Ironically, that means the government's own evidence contradicts the government's official position. 9-11 was brought to us compliments of the CIA, the neocons in the Department of Defense, and the Mossad. Don't let yourself be played. Read America Nuked on 9-11. Available at moonrockbooks.com. That's moonrockbooks.com. The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and freedomslips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Continuing a conversation with Kevin Barrett, my dear friend and colleague who now resides in Morocco. And of course, Kevin, as I know you're aware, during the trials of Ernst Sundell in Canada for Holocaust denial, distributing the pamphlet, Did Six Million Really Die? In 1985, the first trial was distinguished by the prosecution failure to be able to produce a single witness who could testify they had seen Anyone put to death in a gas chamber, zilch, nada, zero, none. In the second, 1988, for the Lochter Report, where Fred Lochter, the leading expert on gas chambers, visited the camps and came back with a report explaining there was nothing there at any of the camps that could have remotely served the function of a gas chamber. Where Fred is still alive and well, remarkably, he spoke at my flag and conspiracy conference for 2023, Kevin, and I recently featured him right here on The Raw Deal, where you are my guest today, elaborating, and he, you know, reviews a bidding. It's just a monstrous myth, and I put it this way, if you've done the research, then you're either a Holocaust denier or a big, fat liar. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's quite that stark. I guess it depends maybe how much research. You know, I, I haven't done enough research to have a uh, firm, you know, grip on, on the whole issue. Uh, but I've done enough to see that the revisionists have a really strong prima facie case. And it doesn't take very much, you know, to figure that out. I mean, just you read a few of these introductory books by the revisionists. You, know, you mentioned Nick Collarstrom. Uh, and that's that's very good stuff. Um, and I've read uh, a few others. There's there's um, the uh, debating the Holocaust by Thomas Dalton. 
and uh, what is the all Ron Unza stuff on this is really good too. Robert Forrison. Forrison, yeah, yeah. I've read a little bit of him and so on. And then I, I read the two leading attempts to respond to the revisionists uh, in in the sort of popular uh, history uh, format. You know, one was denial by Deborah Lipstadt, which is unbelievably bad. Uh, it's almost as if Deborah Lipstadt and her publishers and supporters, whoever's putting her up to this, is actually covertly trying to support the revisionists because it's just awful. It's nothing but sort of histrionic, emotional wailing with no good factual basis. Uh, you know, there's no coherent argument. Uh, the references aren't convincing. That, you know, it, it's just a, a textbook case of, you know, fallacy and incoherence. And so then let's turn to the other the other uh, well-known one that sold a fair bit is, is called Denying History by Michael Shermer. And I think the other guy was Grobman. And that is better, much better than Lipstadt, which isn't saying much, but it's still not very convincing. And in fact, it runs into some of the kind of obvious problems, like if uh, the Auschwitz plaque had to be changed uh, and it's some, from like four and a half million people were gassed here to what was it like one something million were gassed here. They lost like two and a half, three million supposed Holocaust victims overnight. Uh, how did how did the defenders of the orthodox position refute that? Well, Shermer and Grobman refute it by saying that well, it just so happens that at the exact moment that we lost you know two and a half or three million Holocaust victims, uh, turned out they didn't really get gassed at Auschwitz. But right at about the same time that that was discovered, we learned that exactly that same number of Jews had in fact been killed on the Eastern Front. We didn't realize that there had been all, you know, that same number to uh, suddenly we got an extra 2.5 to 3 million victims who had, uh, we just discovered had been killed on the Eastern Front. We didn't know that before. Now, to me, that's not a very convincing argument to say the least. And there are a lot of other examples too. So again, you, you know, when you do the basic research and you compare uh, the best you can find from both sides, and honestly, in terms of stuff that's actually been published and widely distributed in the English speaking world in book form, I don't think, I don't know what else there is. Uh, you know, where is there a, a really good uh, defense of Holocaust orthodoxy? And I've asked this question repeatedly, and nobody's been able to answer it. Not even people who've come on my radio show and given a better argument than I ever saw from people like Lipstadt and uh, and Shermer and Grobman. So my conclusion, even though you know I'm not a professional historian, I've just read you know I've read the same you know 30 or 50 World War II books everybody else has, plus these you know sort of intro to revisionism pro and con. But just based on that, it's just obvious that the revisionists have a good prima facie case, and therefore locking people up in prison because they support the case that seems stronger. Uh, makes you suspect that the whole reason that they are you know, imprisoning historians uh, for taking the wrong position on this is because if they didn't do that, the dam would break. And, and the fact that we've been, if not hoaxed, at least been fed uh, a really exaggerated war propaganda narrative all these decades would become obvious. And then what would that mean for the future of Israel? And right home at, here at home now, we've just had released this new package of proposals for border policies that turn out to allow, legalize, Kevin, 1.5 million illegals per year, uh, slides up to 2.38 billion to NGOs that are supporting the illegals, 
giving, of course, 60 billion to Ukraine and 14 or so to Israel. It seems to me it's just a sellout and that there's an Oklahoma senator named Langford who has promoted this plan, but it's really just making illegal immigration legal, and it gives Biden or the president all kinds of ways to allow it to surge. I find this outrageous and insulting, and we have members of the House who have declared now they're not going to allow this bill to pass. Trump himself has said he'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. He's, of course, also declared that if he becomes president again, he's going to undertake the greatest deportation program in the history of America. I believe him. I think that's what we need. Your thoughts? Well, you, you know, you and I have somewhat different perspectives on this one because uh, I, I think, like, actually, I understand the good arguments for uh, tighter border control and uh, reducing immigration to the United States and certain other countries as well. I, I fully understand that. And I probably agree with that position, but I am alienated by the bad arguments in favor of restricting immigration coming from, well, including people like Donald Trump, who harped on the supposed horrible criminality of all these Hispanic people coming across the border. And in fact, statistics show that's just not the case, that the crime rates uh, are not going up because of these uh, immigrants across the Hispanic border. And the same uh, is maybe true to a lesser extent in Europe, where the anti-immigration forces are kind of hysteria. Uh, they're full of you know, hysteria in uh, decrying the crimes of immigrants. Now, in Europe, I think there may be a case that uh, immigrants do commit uh, an unusual share of the uh, crimes in some of these countries, but if you adjust for the you know age and gender, it, it's not nearly as disproportionate as it might look at first. It just so happens that in some of these European countries, hardly anybody has been having kids for a generation or so. So now, if you look at you know all of the uh, total population of twenty-year-old males, you know you end up with an awful lot of them being immigrants. And 20-year-old males are the people that have the high crime rate. So you do you adjust for the you know age and gender, and then you could adjust for economic status as well. And at the end of that adjustment, you would find that immigrants aren't really that much worse than anybody else in terms of crime. And so this this wailing and gnashing of teeth about the evil, criminal, dark-skinned immigrants, it is racist and disgusting and obnoxious. There are all kinds of lies being peddled about it. For instance, the story about the, the mass rapes uh, that happened on New Year's Eve in Cologne, Germany, have been persuasively, I think, exposed as a complete hoax by Jonathan Ravuski. Uh, certainly, the uh, that that north the high north Russia, northern Russia uh, incident, where supposedly the heroic white people like beat up the evil dark-skinned uh, immigrants who were going to try to rape some women, that was all obviously a hoax, a merman's hoax. Hoax, and uh, then there's all this hoax of these supposed no-go zones. Now, Jim, you may remember you and me and Nick Collarstrom uh, walking around in these really pretty, you know, down and out uh, sections of London, uh, going to mosques where we were going to try to persuade the Muslims to come see our 9-11 truth event. And uh, those were not no-go zones. And yet that's the kind of place that these idiot anti-immigration racist propagandists keep pointing at as, you know, oh, no white person would ever dare set foot there. And so I've issued a challenge over the it's been it's been standing for like eight or 10 years now uh, that 
please uh, tell me where there is a single no-go zone in Europe where a white guy like me couldn't just show up uh, and I will go there. You put up, you know, pay my travel expenses and even as low as just a $1,000 premium to cover my time. And I'll go to that no-go zone and I'll get on the phone or internet with you and I'll, we'll do a little chat for, and I'll be standing there in a no-go zone. I'll hang out for the no-go zone for as long as you like. And uh, you'll see that there's no such thing as a no-go zone. So, so th these lies uh, and this racist garbage coming from the anti-immigration side just repels sane and decent people. They need to stop that, and they need to start giving us the good arguments against excessive immigration. Well, what are the good arguments, Kevin? I don't want you to leave the impression or my inadvertently allow it that you think open borders is a good idea. I mean, every economist in the world agrees you cannot combine open borders with a welfare state. These immigrants are being given all kinds of inducements. Millions of dollars are being used by DHS and UN to bring them here in convoys. I even have video of uh, trucks bringing migrants to the border where they have on their door the Star of David. We know this is implementing the Calurgy plan. Brett, you could comment on that as the bigger picture combined with the powered Clinton plan to destroy America by overloading the welfare system to cause it to collapse. Well, yeah, I think the best arguments against immigration are, uh, well, number one, as you say, it's incompatible with a welfare system. That is, it's hard to take care of your own people when you're being flooded with workers uh, competing for jobs with those people. And that's why the biggest corporations and the richest individuals are the biggest supporters of open borders. And historically, labor unions have generally been against the open borders. And so concern for ordinary working people, such as the majority of African Americans in the United States, uh, is a really good reason to uh, close the borders or greatly reduce the immigration rate. That way you're going to have higher wages for working people. And then you can also have a better safe social safety net because it won't have millions and millions of people swarming in to join that social safety or you know, to be part of the group that either works or is in the social safety net. And that, so that's number one. And then the other argument, I think, is that right now the rate of immigration in some places is so high that it's a threat to social stability. It's just normal that if you are replacing the majority ethnic group of a particular country, that they're not going to like it. And some of them are going to get very angry. And then you almost can't blame them for going into racist hysteria, right? So, I mean, I, I was kind of hard on them before, but I, I can kind of see how like these Irishmen feel. My, you know, John Waters, who's been on my radio show, is really upset that the Irish are going to be a minority in their own country uh, possibly as early as 2030, uh, because the Irish government is just shipping in so many uh, refugees and, and other immigrants. So I think that's a good argument, too, is that immigration rates need to be calibrated in such a way that they don't overwhelm the population of the country. So that, those, I think, are really the good arguments. And then on the other side, we have to admit that the real argument um, for immigration is not so much all of the, these, I think some of these conspiracy theories, and I use that term knowing full well that a great many, perhaps most so-called conspiracy theories are actually true. Uh, but in this case, I think the notion that the whole point of bringing in the immigrants 
is to bring in Democrats to vote Democratic in the U.S. and so on. And then, you know, in Europe, there are these theories that they're, it's all a Muslim conspiracy or something. Or, you know, there are all of these interesting ideas uh, that I can't quite make out how they would work in reality. I think that stuff is secondary to the fact that the, the, the one actual reasonably good reason to bring in a lot of immigrants is because Europe, white people have stopped breeding. In Europe, the child per woman birth rate is down to about one. Uh, you know, that's like bringing on uh, population collapse. And the, so if you're, if you're the leader of the European Union, you look at that and you say, you know, nobody's shown us that it's possible to quickly increase birth rates, even if you wanted to. And since there are all these people who would like to come here and work uh, and pay the Social Security taxes that will allow the uh, grossly top-heavy population of oldsters in these countries, the baby boomers, to retire and still get their pensions, then it's really the only option. There's just no other way. And and so that's the good argument in favor of, of high immigration sure. rates. We have to acknowledge that. Well, in Morocco, you may be unaware that in Chicago and New York, there are lots of protests that they're being overwhelmed, that they can't handle the surge. They, they got airports where they're housing migrants or taking over high schools or getting the students out, putting the migrants in. They don't have the money to cope with it. It's overwhelming the hospitals in Denver. The largest hospital can't cope with a massive number of migrants. I mean, surely that represents a threat to the nation's security. It seems to me if the United States were simply to adopt the migration policies of Mexico, principally two, number one, you can only migrate to Mexico if you have something to contribute to the good of Mexico, like being a carpenter, a plumber, a lawyer, a doctor. Number two, you can only migrate to Mexico if you have the financial resources to support yourself and your family members so you don't become a burden on the state. Those two simple principles that seem to me have adopted by the United States would solve the problem. But the Democrats are going whole hog, and they're actually, this is part and parcel in my judgment, of the George Soros dream to destroy America by, you know, changing the demographic so substantially that we're going to have the same result as you spoke of in Ireland, where... Americans are going to be a minority, uh, you know, and it's not that far off at the rate at which this is taking place. It's really, to me, completely outrageous. Your further thought? Yeah, well, I, I agree with a whole lot of that. I don't understand why it's necessary to uh, not only allow illegal immigration, but then actively encourage it. That doesn't make sense to me. Obviously, governments should try to make sure that the whatever immigration they have is legal. I mean, that's and I think this is part of the reason that there's such a strong anti-immigration movement is that people see that this is just insane. Like, I mean, I, just from a personal standpoint, I've traveled around the world and I can't just cross borders uh, without showing my papers. I mean, it's kind of a nice dream, right? You know, imagine all the people crossing borders without their passports. I love it. I, that that there's something appealing about that. But the fact is, that as long as we have this system that forces you and I to go jump through all these hoops. I mean, you should have seen the hoops I had to jump through just to bring my freaking cat to Morocco. 
<laughs> yeah, and, it, and that was the fall of the U.S. government. You know, it required multiple appointments. You know, spend a thousand bucks, jab the cat multiple times, keep bringing the cat into the vet and getting you know chipping and stuff. And and uh, oh man, it was just nuts. And uh, and likewise, all of the paper you know we've had to go through and all of the immigration stuff and getting per- residency permits in Morocco, which we're doing by the way. We're not just you know s- swimming to the beach here in Saidia from a sh- from a boat and taking up residence here without you know without doing it legally of course not you shouldn't people shouldn't do that so yeah i mean i i totally understand the people who say there should be zero illegal immigration anybody that tries to come across illegally should be stopped and sent back yeah that's that makes good sense and then the argument is about well then you know how do you run the legal immigration system and i think what those two points you mentioned about mexico's policy make pretty good sense and i'm sure there, there are probably a few other things that could be added but yeah no I, I i'm basically in agreement with that and i think the vast majority of americans would agree that there's really no reason why anybody should be tolerating any illegal immigration just a couple of thoughts about the 2024 election. There's, I think, no doubt Trump will be the GOP nominee. Uh, uh, there's also, in my opinion, no doubt the Democrats are going to try to steal the election again, but they cannot do it with Joe Biden. His popularity is sunk to such a low point that if Biden were to be reelected, no one would believe it. I have concluded that between Super Tuesday and the Democrat convention in Chicago, Biden is going to step out of the arena, possibly pardoning Hunter in the process, to be replaced by Kevin Newsom and Michelle Obama, probably the combination. Michelle's been making noises about her desire to run for president. I think that could be quite embarrassing, given that Michelle Obama is actually a man with breast implants. But what do you see forthcoming here with this election, where it could be that a border crisis precipitates what's viewed as a civil war, martial law is declared, and the election is suspended. Your thoughts about all of the above? Yeah, I think it's it's looking pretty chaotic. We've had neocons uh, like uh, Robert Kagan. You know, he penned an, uh, an article uh, for the Washington Post, essentially, you know, all but calling for the assassination of Donald Trump. I think the headline was something like, uh, you know, we can't wait one more minute. Uh, Trump's uh, election is looking increasingly inevitable. And a close reading of that article is I was, I think, the first to point out. And then lots of other pointed out, point the same thing out after that. uh, It sure sounded like a call for Trump's assassination. So there are some really high feelings running around this election. Yes, yes, yes. But who do you foresee to be the Democrat nominee? Who do you think their slate will be? Do you think they could possibly run with the fake Biden? Remember, I mean, the actual, the real Joe appears to have died in 2017. By my assessment, we've had at least four different candidates playing the role of Joe Biden. Do you think there's any reason to think the Democrats would try to run with him again? Well, Jim, I'm I'm skeptical about the Biden replacement hypothesis because whoever they keep replacing him with is even a little bit more senile than the previous version. So you would think that they would actually, you know, try to tune him up a little bit if they were replacing him. They, they'd build one of those Disney presidential androids that could do better than this. <laughs> we're seeing this guy too. But in any case, you're right. I, I the, you know, whether, whether it's just a, a series of replacement robot Bidens that keep breaking down worse and worse, which is like a scene out of a Philip K. Dick novel <laughs> or <laughs> whether, uh, 
uh, it's it's just Biden himself uh, wearing out, and for some reason his earlobes look different in different pictures. I don't know, but no, nah, yeah, I, I don't see Biden as being very electable, and he's really torpedoed his chances by going along with the Israelis as much as he has. He's t- really unpopular within his own party because of that, and of course the other party doesn't like him anyway. So his numbers are down in kind of unprecedentedly bad areas. And yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrats find a way to dump him. And, you know, M- Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom sounds like, a, uh, I suppose, a, a dream to the Democrats. It sounds like a, a scene from hell to me. I'm just kind of glad I'm out of there. I get it. And having been born and raised in Southern California, of course, to see the destruction of the Golden State under these Democrat governors is tragic. And the lawlessness, you know, major stores are shutting up in these Democrat cities because the crime rate has become so high. And when you lose the stores, you lose the revenue. So there's not as much tax money to fund public services. So it's kind of a death spiral that defunding the police and getting rid of bail and, you know, not prosecuting for shoplifting up to 950 bucks. All this has been brought on by policies. And it seems to me it's awfully difficult to see how they can be reversed. Yeah, it's well, they're, they're, the policies are pretty bad on both sides with the Trump administration had, you know, they, they uh, gave the richest taxpayers a, a huge bonus. Uh, and of course, Trump killed General Soleimani and gave Bibi Netanyahu Jerusalem on a silver platter and pushed these insane, sick, uh, demonic Abraham Accords on countries such as Morocco, where I live, among others. Uh, and, and so Trump's policies actually produced the current genocide in Palestine. Uh, had there been no Abraham Accords, no moving to Jerusalem, if Trump had taken the position at least as, you know, quote unquote, moderate regarding uh, Netanyahu as Obama did and as Biden has, I don't think there would be this genocide right now. So, you know, this Trump line that if I were president, this wouldn't have happened. It's the opposite. You did it, Trump. You created this. My interpretation has been it's a failure of Ukraine to prevail where Ukraine was destined to be the new Israel that has led to the mopping up, uh, the desire to get rid of all Palestinians out of Palestine, whereas you've heard me say before, no doubt, the ultimate solution from the Israeli point of view is to load all the Palestinians aboard a ship, float it out to sea, and sink it. They're now doing the equivalent, and God only knows when it's going to be brought to a halt, Kevin. Do you have any optimism at all about ending the genocide? Well, it's going to end one way or another. And I, I don't think the Israelis will get away with killing everybody. And the Gazans aren't going anywhere. And nobody's going to, you know, Egypt's not going to open up the crossing, even if the Gazans were willing to cross it, which they aren't. They'll die where they are. Uh, and even if the Israelis were somehow able to get some of the you know, most, most starving people to sort of t- you know, t- totter across the border, or, you know, get out, somehow get lifted onto boats, uh, the majority, a, a, a huge number of people would stay in Gaza, and that would include all of the most militant people. I mean, all of the ones who are most absolutely determined you know, to, to stay and fight to the last. So it's not going to work. The Israelis have lost. They've lost militarily. They can't stop the Palestinian resistance. And ultimately, the world's going to change. The, the global south is going to take over. The American empire is going to die, and Israel will die with it. 
Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio.